History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD, and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Persia. Hey everybody, you may have recently started hearing a little blurb about Hopful Media at the start of each episode, before the ads. There's a full announcement just after episode 83, but I wanted to slip this message into the backlog so you'd know what was going on. Absolutely nothing of substance has changed, and History of Persia is just as independent as ever. The H-O-P in Hopful is literally my acronym for History of Persia. This is just a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff for building a brand to cover potential future projects. If and when that happens, you'll hear about it in this feed first. Thanks for listening! Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special announcement episode of the History of Persia. I was gonna say that it's been a while since I did one of these. But then I looked at the script, and the last fundraising announcement started with those exact same words. Turns out that it just takes a while between waves here. 
This is going to be a bit about fundraising and a bit of general state of the pod stuff. But as always, I don't like asking y'all for money without giving you something. So today, we're also going to talk about the last bit of coinage that I should include in the Achaemenid period. The stuff minted by satraps with royal oversight. And I'm not going to give the time code to skip to that, because I want everyone, patrons included, to hear this announcement. It's cool stuff. First, I really want to give a shout-out to everyone for bearing with me this past year, especially everyone on Patreon. Nothing ever goes to plan in any part of life, but I fell way behind on my podcasting goals, and you all stuck with me through some prolonged silence. So for that, I am genuinely grateful. To give some perspective, depending on scheduling, this announcement is coming just before or after episode 75. That was supposed to come in April of 2022. I'm not making any promises yet, but I just might pull off episode 100 on time as I originally planned it. Fingers crossed. I'll talk a bit more about Patreon in a bit, but while I've got you thinking about episode 100, I wanted to make a relevant announcement. Presumably, active, caught-up listeners know that I have been on a weekly release schedule. I really wanted to get back on track, and to do that, I needed to speed up episode production. But come July, around I think episode 80 or 81, I'll be back where I would have been with a consistent bi-weekly arrangement from day one. I'm not going to immediately drop back to that, though some travel plans might interrupt releases over the summer. That said, if you like the every single week thing, we need to double some numbers if I'm going to continue dedicating this much time to research and writing. That can be the total number of listeners or the number of Patreon subscribers. Either would work, both would be amazing. But I am setting that as my first ever Patreon goal. If we can get to 250 patrons, I'll keep the weekly schedule going for as long as I can. To sweeten the pot, I'm reinstating the sticker giveaway for the summer. New patrons at every tier will get a free History of Persia sticker until September 1st. I'm still going off the original run of stickers and would absolutely love if you made me print more. Speaking of stickers, on to the main event. I'm guessing you saw the title. We've got merch. This is something I've been thinking about for a long time and working hard on more recently. When I launched Patreon, I was actually really shocked by how well-received the promotional stickers were. So I decided to expand on that concept. For those that don't remember, or never really looked into it, those stickers feature a loose translation of The History of Persia, in Old Persian. 
Those stickers will now be available for purchase, in addition to a whole host of other designs and styles to show off your fealty to the Podcast of Persia, the great podcast, the Podcast of Podcasts. A podcast for this world far and wide. You get the idea. I guess I should explain how this will work, because then a few of you might even go to the store and look around while I explain. For the record, I'm in no way sponsored by any of the relevant companies, but I think you ought to be able to look them up if you want to. And obviously, I do benefit from using their platforms. So I've got a storefront set up with an e-commerce platform called LaunchCart. You can find that by going to historyofpersiapodcast.com and clicking the new store option in the navigation menu. If you want to go straight there without looking at the website for some reason, I guess you can do that at historyofpersia.launchcart.com. That's historyofpersia, all one word, dot l-a-u-n-c-h-c-a-r-t dot com. It's a pretty straightforward shopping website. You've used one before, I'm certain. As it stands now, I have the featured items on the homepage arranged to give you a good sense of what types of merch and designs are available. The other, arguably more important half of the equation, is where all of this stuff is coming from. That would be Printful, a print-on-demand platform that I settled on after comparing a whole bunch of them. The nice thing about print-on-demand is that I'm not sitting on a throne of boxes filled with t-shirts praying that one design and style takes off. Instead, all I had to do was make the blueprint, and Printful will screen print the shirt and or all the other stuff on an order-by-order basis. That means I can have a bunch of different items or styles with the same designs, and it won't be a giant nightmare or a giant expense. Hopefully, that also means there's something in there for everyone. That said, returns are still my problem. They're totally doable, but please, please read the return policy first. Now, I'm a podcast listener too, I have things that I'm a fan of, I have friends that I want to support, and one thing I do want to stress is that you should absolutely not equate a higher price tag with more support for the show. The prices generally reflect the minimum I could charge for the most expensive size and color on a given item in the most expensive shipping area which is Australia, if you want to know who to blame when you don't like the price. My actual income from any given item is going to vary a lot based on your size and location. Buy the merch you like the most, and let me deal with the rest. It's much more important to me that you guys are enjoying the show, and that your clothes are letting other people know that you enjoy the show. But enough about the technical stuff. What have I got for you? Quite frankly, there's a lot. I went a little overboard for just a first attempt. There are a few designs and items that I made just by playing around with Photoshop and Printful to learn the ropes. That'd be the mouse pad, 
and the socks. Honestly, I have no idea how well-received any of this is going to be, so I kept things mostly in-house for the time being. Fortunately, Cuneiform looks super cool, so I leaned into that. First, there's the obvious choice. A plain and simple Faravahar, the iconic image of the Achaemenid royal figure seated in a winged disc. And like everything else, it just says History of Persia podcast underneath the main design. There's also a version of a black Faravahar superimposed on the cuneiform symbol for Ahura Mazda. In Old Persian, a few words that were particularly common, long, and important could be represented with a phonetic spelling or a single symbol, called a logogram. The symbol for Ahura Mazda looks like a fleet of tiny horizontal lines aimed at one big vertical line. It's suitably large and dramatic for a god. The other Old Persian logogram was the word for king, Khashayathia, and it's one of the most aesthetically pleasing symbols in the whole Old Persian script, so I had to use that one too. It's clean, simple, and otherwise unadorned. And finally, the last major design is the one I'm calling the Immortals. It's a simple sketch outline of a group of four Persian soldiers, two in so-called median battle dress and two in court robes like the colored bricks from Susa. Basically, everyone I've shown so far had a different one as their favorite, so that feels like a good start. Those four basic designs appear on a whole bunch of different styles. There's two different styles of crew neck t-shirt, one labeled soft style and the other just short-sleeved t-shirt. Aside from price, the biggest difference is really that the soft style doesn't have as many color options. But, because I can have as many items and designs as I want, I got to thinking about what people like from their merch. You know, stuff like I personally love a nice hoodie. My wife has always hated how boxy crewneck t-shirts fit, and how there are vehement proponents of long-sleeved shirts for any group function. So I covered my bases. Not only are there your usual souvenir t-shirt styles, but there's a v-neck, a scoop neck, a long-sleeve option, hoodies, crewneck sweaters, and two styles of tank top. Like I said, something for everyone. Everything listed falls somewhere in the $17 to $35 range, with most of it hovering somewhere around $20. And I gotta say, I ordered proofs for myself to make sure it all works, and the soft-style t-shirts are wildly comfortable. Like, I might try to transition my wardrobe to 100% self-promotion. And that's not all. Once I had the basics worked out, I had fun with it. There's a more limited shirt design that I made purely for the meme value. You ever wanted to acknowledge some king shit? Well, now there's cuneiform shirts that say king shit in Old Persian. Because there's one or two of you I know will be buying that. And I should note that basically all of the clothes are unisex. So don't pass up on something just because the stock photo model has the wrong look. 
I even set the categories to help you search by design because other normal sorting methods didn't make a ton of sense. But it's not just clothes. A couple of the same designs made their way onto other items with more or less variation. There's a Farabahar sticker that is the perfect sort of thing for a water bottle or laptop. There's also the cuneiform symbols for king on a phone case, both for Apple and Samsung, with a surprising number of generations. There are also a couple of embroidered patches, iron-on or sewn, if you're into that sort of thing. Those feature either the symbol for king or Ahura Mazda. And that's not even the end of it, but I'm getting close. There's also two designs that didn't really work for the shirts, but I liked them. The first is one that just spun out of me playing with Photoshop. It features mirrored images of an Achaemenid-style king facing one another. One is dark, the other light. I took the liberty of adding some cuneiform text to label the opposing figures as Arta and Drauga. That is, the Persian form of Asha and Druge, the truth and the lie. It just seems like a really natural fit for the image. You can get that in the form of a poster, in various sizes, or on a coffee mug. And, yes, also the mouse pad. Last but not least, once I saw that Printful gave me the option to design a flag, I had to do it. So now, you can get a flag with the design of the Achaemenid royal family's military standard, called the Daraf Shabazz. It's a red field with a golden falcon, described by Xenophon. The same image is available as a poster and a mug. I think that's everything, probably forgetting something. I had fun with it, and I hope you'll have fun showing it off for the history of Persia. This is also just a trial run. If it's well-received, I do want to expand with some commissioned artwork and, more broadly, ancient Persia stuff that doesn't have to be podcast-branded. I've got ideas for band tour-style t-shirts with some of the big names, and other designs that fit into later eras of Persian history. Now with merch, that does change some of my options, especially for what is undoubtedly my biggest content-creating failure. Life comes at you fast, and with a pandemic here and some panic attacks there... Grad school didn't quite go as planned for me. It certainly didn't lead to enough writing for me to hold up my end of the bargain on some of the more generous Patreon backers for the $10 King of Kings tier. So I'm going to restructure that, both to better reward those of you who are already there, and to maybe get some more eyes on those higher Patreon tiers. I am actually writing again a fair bit, Some of that is for the history buffs, which regular listeners should know all about, but I've also got some other projects in the works. So what I'm gonna do is make sure I've posted at least one piece of writing for every King of Kings and King of Lands patron, and then I'm gonna transition those over to merch-based benefits. If you're already there, you don't have to do anything except watch your inbox, because I'm gonna message you. If you're not there, now might be a good time to sign up. 
Those tiers will have access to supporter email updates, the ad-free feed, and bonus episodes just like before, but they'll also get exclusive discount codes for merchandise. Additionally, the King of Kings tier will get one randomly selected item from the store as part of their subscription, and the King of Lands will get an item of their choosing. For those that don't want to or can't sign up for Patreon for whatever reason, eventually the merch store will serve as a venue to buy the exclusive bonus episodes individually or in thematic collections, so keep your eyes out. Shifting focus, I'm writing for a newsletter now. It's called The History Buffs. Regular listeners will have heard about it in ads recently. Those were paid ads, but this isn't. I really am writing articles for the history buffs, basically every week now. I get that people are exhausted by ads and try to skip them. I do it too. That said, I really do want this to succeed and for my listeners to subscribe. It's really cool and completely free. You just get a bit more history in your week. This isn't a paid spot, I just want to promote it. The deal was for five ads, you can go back and count. Hell, I'll even provide receipts if you don't believe me. It's at thehistorybuffs.com slash historyofpersia, and there's a link down below. If you're tired of me, it's not my newsletter. There are other topics. For example, did you know all of the tropes from every jungle adventure movie might be based on Teddy Roosevelt's actual trip to the Amazon. I didn't, but it's a cool article. There's topics ranging from pre-Columbian Peru to Afghanistan in the 1990s. There's even a bunch of ancient Persia stuff coming down the pipe. Seriously, open your app, click the link, put in your email. I can almost guarantee that you'll find a topic that catches your eye. And last but not least a little bit of state-of-the-pod stuff. First up, I want to address the new Iranian listeners. I've had a surge in my audience in Iran itself, and I want to thank them directly. I know a lot of you may have skipped this because you can't participate, but hopefully some people stuck around. I've added the podcast to a couple of Persian language platforms, and even though it is in English, I hope that makes it easier for people to find and enjoy. I also want to make an offer to those Iranian listeners or anybody else in a country that doesn't have access to Patreon because of hostile U.S. embargoes. If you're in one of those countries and can reach out by email, let me know and I will send you the mp3 files for any and all of my bonus episodes. It recently came to my attention that you might not be able to view my official website either. If somebody would be willing to reach out and help me clarify that, I would greatly appreciate it. With that out of the way, keep it coming, Anglosphere. History of Persia has started to crack into the iTunes charts for the United States and the UK on a regular basis. In most of the other Anglophone countries, we've got a comfortable spot right around the middle of the history chart. The absolute best promotion I ever had was when I hit trending on Podcast Addict. If y'all can get me up there on Apple, it will do wonders toward that weekly goal. On the other hand, 
the nation of Macedonia, uh, northern Macedonia, must know that Alexander is coming up. I'm sure the English podcast audience is small, but Macedonian listeners brought me up to number two on the iTunes history charts for their country, and number 15 out of all podcasts. That's pretty sweet. I look forward to seeing what happens when I get to the 330s. And finally, which one of you listened to me in Antarctica? I mean, congratulations, you got me to listeners on all seven continents. But I am desperately curious to know why you were doing that. Okay, I think that is enough about my money. Let's talk about ancient Persian money. Wait, what's going on? Ben, we're on someone else's podcast. Let's not intrude too much. You've got 30 seconds to tell this wonderful listenership about the conference. Shoot. Oh, okay. Uh, Intelligent Speech is back. Again, it's a conference that brings together your favorite educational podcasters with their fans in an intense one-day online extravaganza. It's all happening online on June 25th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Between the three keynotes and the 42 individual sessions and roundtables, it's a three-ring circus of online content. Wow, what are they going to be speaking about? Our theme this year is crossings of one form or another. Very arty, very chic. Amazing. Where can people get tickets? Intelligent Speech Conference, all one word, dot com. And tickets are $30, and if you use this show's promo code, which hopefully the host will shortly provide, you will save an additional 10%. Wow! browsing music. Okay, so one more promotional thing. But they made such a well-produced trailer for intelligent speech that it would be a shame not to use it. This is your reminder that I will be speaking at the Intelligent Speech Conference in a few weeks. It's on June 25th and starts at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern. I'll be talking about the Cyrus Cylinder, Alexander the Great, and there will be all sorts of other podcasters talking about all sorts of other stuff. So go to intelligentspeechconference.com or follow the link in the episode description Then, buy your tickets using promo code PERSIA to show you care. So actually on to coinage this time. This is going to be a bit different from the last two financial announcements where I talked about the Derricks and the Sigloi, the official coinage of the Achaemenid Empire. In those episodes, I focused more on the technicalities of the coins themselves, their weight, designs, construction, and so on. This time, it's going to be more about the political and economic circumstances that led up to the creation of the coins in question, because those coins are as varied as the people who minted them, and they largely reflect a set of standards that will be more relevant after I finish with the Achaemenids. Way back... I told the story of Ariandes, the satrap of Egypt who was removed from office by Darius the Great on accusations of treason. I think that was part of episode 24. 
one of his chief crimes, according to Herodotus, was supposedly attempting to mint his own currency as satrap. So in 515 BCE, that was considered an act of treason. Fast forward a couple of decades, and that was changing. But that can't be the whole story. Many of Ariandi's neighbors and domestic trade partners were also minting their own coinage. So the politics of coins must have been more complicated than they appear on the surface. The story of currency minted by local power holders within the Achaemenid Empire is just as old as the empire itself. As we've discussed before, the first coinage appeared in Lydia about 50 years before the conquests of Cyrus the Great. They were probably intended as tokens of royal favor, but were minted in such large quantities that people started using them as a reliable standard for trade with large purchases. Simultaneously, similar ideas were playing out in a few Greek cities, including Klatsomenai in Ionia, which is another contender for the inventors of coinage. By the time Cyrus got there in the 540s, coins were not just being minted in Sardis, but in many Greek cities along the coasts and rivers of the Lydian kingdom. Moreover, the islands of the coast all the way to Cyprus, just slightly out of Persian reach, were also minting coins. In true early Persian fashion, those mints were allowed to carry on for the next 20 years unimpeded. The reign of Darius the Great brought an end to the Lydian Cresid, but only because the new king usurped the mint in Sardis to start pumping out the first generation of Darics and Sigloi. The Greek cities, on the other hand, just kept going. The small, semi-independent principality in Lycia even started minting its own coins for the first time around 520. Not to mention the spread of coinage in independent Greek cities. Coins from all of these places rapidly became the standard medium of exchange in the eastern Mediterranean during the late 6th century. It's easy in that case to see why Ariandes might have thought it would be prudent as satrap to mint his own coins. He didn't need treasonous motivations to realize that the richest and most centralized government in the region should be minting its own coins. But apparently that, and his military intervention in Libya, were a bridge too far for Darius. Still, all of the existing mints were allowed to continue operating even after they were used to finance the Ionian Revolt, when the Ionian League minted its own national coinage for the Allied rebels. That said, they were probably just a convenient way to supplement the Sardis mint without an additional burden on the imperial government. Darix and Sigloi poured out of the Lydian capital and into Greco-Persian shipyards to finance Darius and Xerxes' wars in the Aegean because the Greeks and their neighbors demanded payment in coinage, which they could use easily in Greek markets. It didn't really matter whether they paid tribute to Parsa or Athens. But the idea of minting coins did not spread very far beyond western Anatolia 
after the Ariandes precedent was set. The only firm example of a new mint between 515 and 420 BC was in Magnesia on the Meander around 460. You might remember that the Athenian admiral in exile, Themistocles, took control of that city and the surrounding area right at that time. He started minting his own coinage, apparently without any pushback from Artaxerxes I. His coins in particular may represent an interesting first in world history, one where the effects are still felt acutely today. Themistocles may have been the first ruler ever to produce currency with his own face on it. Up to this point, Greek coinage exclusively had the image of gods or a city's emblem pressed on the metal. Maybe that was the iconic owl of Athens or the snarling lion in Lydia. Or maybe it was a face, but with clear iconography to let you know you were looking at Athena, Zeus, or some other deity. Themistocles minted coins with a nondescript bearded face. Some say it might be Zeus, but there's nothing really indicating that one way or the other. But you know who was just a dude with a beard? Themistocles. The Persian royal figure on the Darix and Sigloi was never detailed enough to represent more than a generic royal figure. It wasn't a portrait. But then, right at the current point in our narrative, around 420 BC, coinage started spreading like wildfire again. Convenient timing. It started in the same general area, and may have been a tool of rebellion. Caria and Cilicia started minting coins soon after Darius II came to power. It started at a city-by-city level but a centralized mint with more official oversight from local satraps took root in the Cilician city of Tarsus. You'll notice that this is right around the time that Pesuthnes and Amorges went into revolt, especially since Amorges' rebellion was focused on Caria. The thing is, these mints never went away. Even after Tissaphernes took over, they were allowed to carry on, There are two aspects to this. On one hand, it was an economically convenient policy in the era of the Peace of Callias, because more coinage meant more trade with Greece, and as Tissaphernes and Pharnabazos drew Persia more into the Peloponnesian War, there was a sudden need to finance vast Greek construction projects in cities both within and beyond imperial territory. That required Greek-style coinage, so this coinage was allowed to flourish and enter into the satrap's coffers. There was very little standardization. Some of it was minted to the Athenian standard, others looked to the mints on the nearby island of Rhodes, and others looked at the Darix and Sigloi, modeled after the Babylonian shekel as a standard of weight. But to finish this story, I need to go beyond the current point in the narrative, because around 400 BC, coinage spread further, spilling out beyond the borders of the old Lydian kingdom. 
local mints in Pontus, the Black Sea coast of Cappadocia, popped up right around 400. That might reflect the rebellion of Cyrus the Younger, or just the increased free trade with other Greeks now that the Ionians were back in imperial hands. They almost certainly helped to pay the vast number of Greek mercenaries flooding into Anatolia at the time. The end of war in the Aegean and increased Greek trade, both with mercenaries passing through and merchants sailing into port, absolutely played a role in Phoenicia. Around 400, the island city of Arwad became the home of the first Phoenician mint, issuing coinage on the Babylonian shekel standard. Arwad, Sidon, and Tyr were allowed to act as a confederation under Persian oversight with a shared seat of government called Tripoli. Their coinage was probably inspired in part by their far-off colonies and trade partners in the western Mediterranean. Carthage, a Tyrian colony, adopted coins around 410, and some Carthaginian coins made their way back to the home country. Arwad remained the only mint in the region until Sidon went into rebellion around 370. At that point, they started up a mint to finance their rebellion. And, once again, it was just allowed to stick around afterward. All of these mints set the environment for a series of revolts against Artaxerxes II, collectively called the Great Satraps Revolt. This included the spread of rebel mints under the direction of Tissaphernes, as in the Tissaphernes we already know well, in the Troad region around 380. But once again, the rebels were defeated and their mints remained open. In this whole span, Egypt had actually become independent. It took decades for the Persians to fully recover from the rebellion that broke out at the end of episode 74. In that time, the Egyptians did sort of start minting coins. The independent pharaohs minted copies of Athenian coinage. Admittedly, it was the most common currency across the whole region. When the Persians finally retook Memphis along with its new mint, in 343, the satraps of Egypt were at long last allowed to mint their own coins in their own names. With hindsight, Ariandi's precedent was minor and all but meaningless. While all of that was happening in the West, something interesting was happening in the East. Coinage was invented independently and spread through northern India, in the wealthy city-states between the Indus and the Ganges, bits of silver, called karshapana, named for a unit of weight called karsha, were being marked with stamps and symbols of local significance. The exact date that these were first created is debatable. They seem roughly contemporary with the early Lydian coinage, so late 7th century, and therefore, the definition of first coin currency comes down to a race for when each one started to meet a strict definition. On one hand, the Cresids started out as a standard weight, but were not intended for trade. 
On the other hand, the Karshapana probably started as an extension of an ancient practice called hack silver. From the earliest use of precious metals, people would just exchange them by weight, either collecting scraps from craftsmen or actually hacking off a bit from some other object. The lack of any uniform shape in the early Karshapana speaks to that tradition, but over time, the city-states, kingdoms, and republics of northern India started producing silver coins with a standard. Their shapes were just a bit rougher. By the mid-5th century BCE, these coins had spread into the eastern territories of the Achaemenid Empire. They were circulated in Taxila, the provincial capital along the Indus River. Within a couple of decades, they were being minted as far west as Gandhara, where Iranian and Indian culture started to blend together. Some of those were minted with distinctly Achaemenid designs, like the back-to-back bull's heads featured on Achaemenid columns. Others feature designs that seem modeled on the lion and bull from early Crescids. Even though the early Karshapana coins did not have a set shape, Western influence can probably be seen in the round shape that was adopted in and around the Achaemenid territories in India. The presence of a coinage economy in the East led to an interesting exchange. Greek coinage would occasionally cross the entirety of the empire to be spent in the East. A cache of Greek Persian, and Indian coins dated to 360 BC were found in the city of Kabul, Afghanistan in 1933, including many minted in the reigns of Darius and Xerxes. Strangely, formal coinage never seems to have taken off in Iran itself, but Babylonia and Assyria are a very different story. The financial pressures of the late 5th century and the gradual increase of trans-imperial trade with Western coinage led to a proto-money economy. More and more, merchants and landlords were demanding payment in silver and gold. They weren't demanding an official currency standard, but they did want precious metal measured by weight, and they preferred that there be a set of designs that would reliably tell them how much they were getting on site. To ease this process, a mint was established in Babylon in the 4th century. It's hard to tell if that mint actually produced any derricks or sigloi under the Achaemenids. It did have access to some royal designs after Alexander arrived, suggesting that Darius III may have initiated the transition to making Babylon an official mint. However, either what became the official mint or ad hoc independent ventures in Babylon started minting copies of Athenian coins just like Egypt. It was the most widely used standard, and thus convenient enough, even far from Athens. So in a strange twist of economic history, the Babylonians were minting Athenian drachmae decades before they fell under Greek rule. And then, under Greek rule, basically everything changed again. But that is a story for another time. 
Next week, we're on to the episode about Persepolis. Buy some merch. Go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, use the menu to go to the store, or head to historyofpersia.launchcart.store. Sign up for Patreon and keep me weekly, or tell your friends to the same effect. Until next time, yada yada yada, this whole episode was spiel. Thank you all for listening to the History of Persia. In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest what-ifs. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to the Holy Roman Empire, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, a history of Valois Burgundy. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.